Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. One of my favorite old stories is of the pastor who was out visiting a family one day and he knocked on the door, but no one answered. No one answered at all. So he knocked again and again, but still no answer. He thought he heard someone inside, but they just would not answer that door. Well, finally, he wrote a note and slipped it into the storm door, taken out of context on purpose. It was Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, my will come in. A few days later, he received a note in the mail. It was Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. (laughs) Last week, we began our study of the letter to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3. It was in verse 8 that we saw that Christ told them, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Who is he speaking to? He was speaking to those with life in Christ, speaking to those that belong to him. Christ was promising an entrance into his kingdom. This was the great encouragement. This was the great promise to God's people. No one, not even those of the synagogue of Satan, could shut them out. Jesus alone can take us into the Father's house. The point of the text is to tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ controls access to the Davidic kingdom. And if he speaks of an open door in the same breath that he refers to that same kingdom, I believe the intent of God is that he is talking about entrance into that kingdom. Now, verse 7 had taught us about the key of David, where we read this. It says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, what was the key? Remember, we talked about this last week. The key was a symbol of trust. God the Father has now invested his faithful steward, God the Son, with a symbol of authority. Christ was claiming the right to be the Messiah. So this is what it means in Revelation 3, the key of David, the authority of David. Revelation 5.5 teaches that Christ is the root of David. Revelation 22.16 teaches Christ is the root and offspring of David. The kingdom authority was entrusted to Christ. Christ is showing that he holds the key to the messianic promises. So what is Jesus Christ claiming here? He is claiming absolute sovereignty over his church. Now, this takes us back to the teaching of 2 Samuel chapter 7. To understand Revelation chapter 3, we need to understand 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
David, at that time, wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord revealed his word to Nathan the prophet. And 2 Samuel tells us, starting in verse 12 of the 7th chapter, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now, here's the point I'm driving at. I want you to notice carefully the words of verse 16, a very important verse in your understanding of all end time doctrine. And your house and your kingdom shall be established. What's the next word? Forever before you. Your throne shall be established. What's the next word? Forever. The throne of David, the kingdom of David are both eternal forever. This meant that those from the line of David would sit on his throne. But his kingdom, David's kingdom, it was interrupted by a lot of things, wasn't it? It was interrupted, think with me, the Babylonian captivity. And even when the people of Israel were allowed to return to their land, Israel was under the rule of Persia, then Greece, and then the Roman Empire. But David's kingdom... It will be restored when the Lord Jesus Christ of the line of David returns to reign over the whole earth. Now, remember what we just said a minute ago. Revelation twenty-two sixteen records that Christ is the root and offspring of David. And verse 7, back in our text in Revelation 3, was speaking of the key of David. Not only a reference to Isaiah 22, but a reference to the Davidic kingdom. A reference to the messianic kingdom which will be established during the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Now before we move on, I want you to notice very carefully in verse 16 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not just that the Davidic throne would be established forever, but notice the first part of the verse. His house and his kingdom shall be established forever. And then in our study we head over to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, let's take a look at verse 11. It says, on that day, now let's stop in our understanding. What day are we talking about? Well, if you take the time later today and go home and look at the context, the context is clearly talking about the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ establishes his kingdom. So let's read it. It says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, if you're looking at this, you look at the verse and see the word tabernacle, you might be thinking to yourself of the Old Testament tabernacle where the Jews worshipped. But when we look closer, the wording has, has just the meaning of a hut or a tent. In other words, this is the hut or tent, the house of David. This is God reestablishing the kingdom of David from which the Lord Jesus Christ will rule over the nations. Now, one more stop before we get back to Revelation chapter 3. Let's stop off at Mark chapter 11. Book of Mark, of course, is always one of my favorite books. So as you turn to Mark 11, listen closely. This concept of a restored future Davidic kingdom was something that the Jews 
clearly understood. And they wanted the Messiah to rule, to reign right there, right in the first century. The context of Mark 11 is that Christ is riding in Jerusalem on a colt. And look at what the people said in verse 10. They said, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You see, this future kingdom of David, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of David. This is the context of our passage in Revelation chapter 3. So here we go. We're building to something. I hope you're following with me. Revelation 3 verse 10, still addressing the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me this morning because it is easy, very easy to miss all of this. The new King James testifies, you have kept my command to persevere. I really love the new King James translation, but not in this case. Listen to the King James. Let's go to the old King James. I think it's a little easier to understand in this case and a little closer to the point of the text. The King James records, thou hast kept the word of my patience, the word of my patience. You see, this is actually telling us it is the word of Christ's patience, the word of Christ's endurance that they had kept. This is the endurance that Christ displayed in his life and in his ministry. Hebrews 12.3 teaches us this. It says, for consider him who, Christ, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. See, the message of this text in Revelation is to look to Jesus Christ as our example of patience. He's our example of endurance. Now, listen to 2 Thessalonians 3.5. It says, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into what? The patience of Christ. In all things, Jesus Christ is our example. Even when it comes to patience, even when it comes to endurance, while living in a lost world that is hostile to Jesus Christ and the people of God. All right, so take the second part of the verse back in Revelation 3.10. It says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, the words I also will keep, they emphasize the watchful care of the Savior for his church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Christ is saying he will protect his church. He will preserve them. The promise to the church is complete protection, complete preservation during the hour of trial. So let's ask ourselves this next question. What, oh what is this hour of trial? Well, we covered this last week that the church at Philadelphia then was facing persecution at the hands of the Jews. But the trials that they faced at that time is no longer the subject. Now, how can I say that? How do we know that that's no longer the subject? Just look at the wording. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. You see, this isn't just for the church at Philadelphia anymore. The trials will come for the whole world. The purpose of the trials that will come is found at the end of the verse, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this takes us directly right to the heart of the tribulation. Because the tribulation, the seven years, the tribulation 
is when God's wrath will be unleashed against men because of their rebellion against him. Understand this, that in the book of Revelation, there's always two groups of people. Those who belong to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who belong to the world, meaning those without faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that will affect the entire world, the people of the world, the lost of the world, just before the Lord's return to this earth. Now, Daniel 12.1, we know Daniel 12.1, don't we? It speaks of this as a time of trouble. And as we're going to see as we make our way through the book of Revelation is that the purpose of this time is to test the lost, to sift them out, either to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ or to punish them with the wrath of God for not believing in the Son of God because they stand condemned. And this is the critical point to understand. You need to understand this. That the purpose of the tribulation for both Jews and Gentiles is either to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ or to punish them for not believing in the Son of God. The purpose of the tribulation has nothing to do with the church, the bride of Christ. Christ will judge his church. When? At the judgment seat of Christ. But that's about rewards. That's about rewards and loss of rewards. The tribulation is God pouring out his wrath on a lost and dying world. Now notice with me very carefully, we're going to go deep. Notice carefully, this is not just saying that Christ would keep them from the trials themselves. It doesn't say that, meaning all the bad stuff during the tribulation. Instead, what does Christ actually tell them? He says he would keep them from the hour, the hour of trial, meaning this. Even if the tribulation would have taken place in their lifetime, they would have been kept from the hour of trial. They would have been kept from the entire period of time when the tribulation will take place, which is what this phrase means, the hour of trial. Now, the only position that I believe supports this, these words from Christ, would be the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. For the church at Philadelphia, the rapture of the church was presented as an imminent reality. If the rapture would have taken place in their lifetime, they would have been delivered from the hour of trial. The hour of trial here spoken of begins in the book of Revelation with chapter 6 all the way through 19, when the Lord Jesus Christ begins to open up the seal judgments, those terrible, terrible seal judgments. You think it's bad in this world now. You have no idea. This is nothing. It's going to be horrible, horrific. And so now we we back up and we just ask ourselves, because we're thinking this morning, right? We're thinking. So we're thinking and we're asking the question, what exactly does this mean that Christ promised to keep them from the hour of trial? Christ was telling the church in Philadelphia that they would not enter this future time of trouble. And to be honest, I don't think there should be so much confusion about this. Christ uses the strongest statement Possible. Hear me, the strongest statement possible that the church at Philadelphia would be delivered from this time. Now, track this, okay? I'm going to repeat myself several times. If the mid-tribulation view was correct, that Christ was going to remove the church half of the way through the tribulation, that they would be taken out from within the tribulation, then a different verb and a different preposition would have been required. 
If the post-tribulation view was correct, meaning that Christ would not return for the church until the end of the tribulation, that Christ was going to preserve them through a time of trouble, then a different verb and a different preposition would have been required. Words have meaning. Words have meaning. And the Greek wording here can only mean the rapture of the church before the tribulation begins. I was reading a commentary this past week. And I honestly got a kick out of it because the guy doesn't believe in the rapture. And then he put this long paragraph and I read the whole stupid thing. I mean, it was ridiculously long. And he's going through this thing and he says, I do not believe in the rapture of the church. However, I have to admit it seems to be taught here. And then he goes on to say why he doesn't believe in the rapture of the church. And I took the book and I almost beat it up because it frustrated me so much. Okay, words have meaning. This is very specific here and carefully described in the Greek. It is so precise and it emphasizes and clearly teaches the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The Greek words, watch this, hear me, listen. The Greek words for keep you from mean out of, out of, that's what they mean. And there are four other ways this could have been worded if John wanted to teach that church age believers would be in the tribulation. But none of them were used. Four other ways, but none of them used. Instead of saying, keep you from or keep you out of the tribulation, John could have said, to keep you in. This would be the promise of preservation in the tribulation. John could have said to keep you through. This would have been a promise to keep us through the tribulation. John could have said, I'll take you out or take from to save us out of the tribulation. This could have been used to teach that believers would go into the tribulation and then be taken out part of the way through. But John used the specific Greek word that means to keep out. This is a promise that church age believers will be kept out of the tribulation. Christ said he'd keep them from the tribulation. The church at Philadelphia would be kept out of that period known as the tribulation. Now, if the post-trib view was correct, I honestly believe that it would be very, very difficult to, to see how the Lord Jesus Christ could have made such a promise to this local church if it was God's intention for his church to go through the tribulation that would come upon the entire world. Now, we're thinking this morning. Remember I said that? We're still thinking, okay? So we're looking back at history, and we're saying, well, it's pretty obvious that the Church of Philadelphia went to be with the Lord. They all died long before the time of trouble, before the tribulation came. So what's going on with that? But then we remember this. This is the teaching of Christ. This is the teaching of the Spirit of God, as we're going to see to the churches what? plural, churches plural, and it becomes very self-evident that this becomes a promise that goes beyond just the church at Philadelphia. See, the Apostle Paul commended the Christians at Thessalonica because they were waiting for Christ to come from heaven to rescue them from the wrath to come. Christ has already taken the wrath of God upon the cross for you and for me. This is why Paul said in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. 
For God did not appoint us to wrath, Paul says. Some translations correctly and accurately translate this as God has not destined us to wrath. God has not destined you and I to wrath. The church is not destined for wrath. Church age believers in Christ are not told to watch out for God's wrath. We are told to watch for Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? This is why we have the teaching of 1 Thessalonians 4, a beautiful text where it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Even so, come Jesus. This is how God will rescue his church from the wrath to come. The church at Philadelphia was being told they'd been tested by the persecution that they faced in the first century, but they could have confidence that when the hour of trial did come upon the earth, they'd be safe with the Lord. Now, before we move on, I'm still beating on my bandwagon this morning. Before we move on, let me also suggest to you this, because we're still thinking, that if the post-tribulation view was correct, then this verse is not a promise of hope. It's a threat. Because Revelation is going to teach us that the hour of trial will be worse than anything the church has ever seen. Many tribulation saints will be killed for their faith and many more are going to suffer greatly. The context here was to encourage the church to promise them they'd be with the Lord during the hour of trial. One of my favorite people in the entire history of the church that I like to talk about is this young lady here, Fanny Crosby. She wrote, you know this, she wrote thousands of hymns, thousands of songs. One of the things I find curious in her hymns was, you know, she was blinded in both eyes at six weeks of age through a medical error, but she could still, she could still, even though she was blind, she could reflect on the beauty of the blessings we have in Christ, often with more clarity than those who had sight And so if you know her hymns, what do you see in some of her songs? This wonderful lady without sight spoke of the day when we will see Jesus Christ. Just a few examples of her words. Watching and waiting, looking above. Remember, she's blind. That's from the song Blessed Assurance. In the song In the Cross, what did she write? She said, near the cross, I'll watch and wait hoping and trusting ever. And into God be the glory, Fanny wrote this. She said, but pure and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Fanny, look forward to the day when we will see Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody, he did the same. I love D.L. Moody. F.B. Meyer once asked Moody how Moody was so effective at preaching. I, th- I think Moody's answer was pretty powerful. He responded by saying this, For many years I've never given an address without the consciousness that the Lord may come before I have finished. Powerful thought. Giants of the faith living in expectation of the day that we see Jesus Christ. But let's take it a step further. Let's be more specific than just looking forward to the day we see Christ. I am convinced that the more a Christian understands the end times, the more it affects their faith and how they live now, and the more it should motivate us to live for Jesus Christ. When can the church expect to be delivered from the hour of trial? Well, the answer is right in our text. The answer is found in verse 11, where it says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. 
Now we will meet the Lord in the air and escape the hour of trial because the promise of verse 10 is that of safety, which means we'll be removed from this earth and we'll be with the Lord. Now, as we go through this, always remembering that Christ, I want you to hear me on this. Christ was not teaching that he would return in the first century. He was not teaching that. That is an error to say that. The gift, the gift that Jesus Christ left to the church is the teaching of the imminent return, meaning just simply this, not a date, but that it could happen at any moment. And every day, his return is one day closer. This, again, was meant to be an encouragement to the church of Philadelphia to let them know that the possibility absolutely did exist in the first century that Christ could return at any time and deliver them from the opposition of the Jews. You see, the teaching is that the deliverance of the saints from the hour of trial will take place when Jesus Christ returns for his church. And he opened the possibility that he could have even come before their generation passed. He didn't guarantee it. He doesn't guarantee it now. But it existed. The possibility existed. And this should motivate us. This should change us. This should motivate the church of every single age to recognize that Jesus Christ will return soon, meaning his return is imminent. It will come suddenly. It will come unexpectedly. See, verse 11 is not a reference to the second coming of Christ described in chapter 19, because before chapter 19 comes all that is in chapter 6 through 18. Doesn't that make sense? In other words, this is a reference here to the rapture of the church. This is a great promise of the Lord to the church that Christ will come for us. Listen to what Darby said about this. This is an absolutely great thought. He said, quote, It is neither knowledge nor prophecy that can satisfy the heart, but the thought that Jesus is coming to take me to himself is the blessed hope of one who is attached to him by grace. There's nothing that must take place on the prophetic calendar before Jesus Christ comes for his church. And I hope you learn to look forward to that day. That is going to be a glorious day. And so what's the application for this church at Philadelphia? Knowing that the Lord could return at any time, it's found here next in the second part of the verse. He says, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. The command here to hold fast, it is a command, is something we've seen before. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 25 for the church at Thyatira. And what they'd been faithful in was something that they needed to hold to. They had the responsibility as believers in Christ to continue to hold on and continue in their faith. They were to continue to hold fast to their testimony for Jesus Christ. And if they did this, no one would be able to take their crown. This is one of these places we scratch our heads a little bit. Where the crown mentioned is not really defined for us. It's one of those places we say, oh, just a little bit more information, please, would be so nice. All that we can say with certainty is that this crown represents victory in the Christian faith. Now, we can put together some pieces here. We can guess a little bit. The word crown is singular, pointing away from the idea of individual crowns. And the wording of someone taking their crown is written in the present tense, meaning this would be in the present age, in the day in which they lived, and not their future reward as they stood before Christ. So my best understanding, my guesstimate at this point, is that Christ might have been using this reference to a crown as a figure of speech, to represent that as a people they have been set apart before the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, a very powerful verse. Watch it with me. Take a look. 
It says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, as we've said before throughout our study of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the overcomers are the regenerated, regenerated those with new life in Jesus Christ. And the great promise of the Lord to the redeemed is an eternal place in his kingdom. That as the called out people of God, set apart, given new life from above, we'll be recognized as the people of God. We'll be recognized as belonging to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse Powerful, if you understand what's taking place, is promising God's people a stable relationship with God, not just here, but absolute assurance of eternal life. It is meant to demonstrate the security and stability of a future life with Christ. Notice the first part of this. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. All right, we're still going to have to be thinking a little bit this morning. This takes us now to Revelation chapter 21. As you turn to Revelation 21, keep in mind the context of Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is after the tribulation. This is after the 1,000-year reign of Christ. And the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. And we're going to take a look at two different texts in Revelation 21. First, we'll start with verse 1, where it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then we skip down to verse 22, still speaking of the New Jerusalem, where it says, important verse, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no temple, because God the Father and God the Son are its temple. The book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, make it clear that during the 1,000-year reign of Christ, there will be a physical temple on earth. But we just saw here in Revelation 21 that there will not be a temple building in the New Jerusalem. So, here it comes. Heading back to Revelation 3, we have to ask the question in verse 12, when is this referring to? Is this the 1,000-year reign of Christ after the tribulation, or is this Revelation 21? And the end of the verse, it teaches us that this is the new Jerusalem, meaning this is Revelation 21. This is eternity, not the 1,000-year reign of Christ. But I want to ask you a question then. How do we reconcile this passage with chapter 21, which just taught us that there will be no physical temple building in eternity? And the answer is in verse 12, is that Christ was using a simple, simple metaphor. Both the pillar and the temple in this verse are just metaphors. The teaching, hear me, is not that we will be an actual stone pillar. You're not going to just be a stone pillar in a temple building, but that we will be like a pillar, meaning that we will be like living stones, living pillars in the new Jerusalem. Now, what is that teaching? Well, remember verse 23 of Revelation 21. It teaches us that the glory of God will illuminate the entire city of new Jerusalem. And so if God the Father and God the Son are the temple, if their glory fills the entire city of new Jerusalem, then we 
friends, believers in Christ, redeemed, reconciled to God by faith, are the living stones that will testify of the victorious work of Jesus Christ in the New Jerusalem. The entire New Jerusalem will be the ultimate temple. It will be the ultimate temple of God. This is teaching that the people of God from the church age will be permanent like a pillar and will stand when everything else has fallen. See, we are promised that we will continue in God's presence for all eternity, keeping in mind the historical context of this book, keeping in mind that in reference to what we saw last week, the earthquakes that they had there at the city of Philadelphia, that there were times when the only thing that was left standing after these earthquakes were the pillars to the pagan temples because everything else had been destroyed. And Christ is telling us that we will stand, Christians. We will continue with God for all eternity. Praise be to God. Notice Christ again refers to the Father as my God. And then he testifies that the overcomer shall go out no more. Now, why is this here? Going back to this idea of earthquakes. They had times when the earthquakes, remember, had forced the people to flee the city. And the great promise here is that the believers could take comfort that in the new Jerusalem, they would have to flee no more. And the other part of the promise is the absolute assurance of eternal life. And we see this in the rest of the verse. Three different ways, three different ways that God will demonstrate that as regenerated by faith, we will belong to him. First, he says, I will write on him the name of my God, which is a way of stating we, friends, belong to God. This goes back to what we read last week, that the Jews who rejected the Messiah were telling these Gentile believers that only the Jews were the people of God. But here, Christ declares the overcomer, the person with new life in Christ, will have the name of God on them to demonstrate that they belong to him. There is no greater name than the name of our God. Second, Christ proclaims he will write on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. To have the name of the city of God will show that we have the right as citizens in new Jerusalem. This is what we saw before in Revelation 21, after the great white throne judgment. Christ describes this city as coming down out of heaven from my God. Now, as I read this part of the verse, as I look at this, I think to myself of any Jew who had faith, any Jew back then who believed in the Messiah, knowing that the Romans had already destroyed their temple, knowing that the Romans had already destroyed their city, Jerusalem, they could read this and read of the new Jerusalem, that they would be citizens by faith of this great city of God. And I also think of the Gentile Christians reading this at Philadelphia, knowing that by identifying themselves as followers of Christ, they didn't fit in. They had become alienated from the people around them. But one day their citizenship in the city of God will be on full display for everyone to see. And the third phrase is given at the end of verse 12. And I will write on him my new name. The deep teaching still continues here. Take a look at what the second half of verse 8 at what Christ had said to this church. It says they had little strength. They had kept his word and had not denied his name. And then we turn ahead to Revelation 19, speaking of Christ. Notice what we read there in verse 12, where it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that, what does it say? No one knew except himself. Christ has a new name. Right now it hasn't been given to us. 
But because we, as his people, have identified with Christ by faith, he will identify himself with us by writing on us his new name. See, right now there's some things about Jesus Christ that we don't fully understand, that we can't fully grasp. Because there's a depth to Christ that we can't fully grasp. But when we are reunited with him, not only will we have a better understanding, a better appreciation for who Jesus Christ is, but we will bear his new name with him. Once again, pointing to that truth that we, friends, belong to him. Verse 13, back in chapter 3, teaches, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit, through Christ, has said to the church at Philadelphia is an invitation to any Christian in any church to hear and to obey. John Todd, he was a preacher back in the late 1800s. When he was just six years old, both of his parents died. And so a very kind and gracious aunt raised him until he left home to study for the ministry. And years later, many years later, this same aunt was sick. It it was something that she would not recover from, and she knew it. Now, his aunt was saved by faith. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. But with death knocking on her door, she was a little nervous. That's typical. That can happen. She knew where she was headed, but she had some concern, and she didn't really know what to expect about death and the afterlife. So she wrote a letter to John expressing her honest and just heartfelt concerns. And here is just part of the letter that he wrote back to her, taken from his own words. And I quote, It is now 35 years since I, as a boy of six, was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word that you would give me a home and be a kind mother to me. I have never forgotten the day I made the long journey to your house, and I can still recall the disappointment when instead of coming for me yourself, you sent your hired man, Caesar, to fetch me. I remember my tears, my anxiety, as perched high on the back of the horse and clinging tight to Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey, and I became lonely, and I became afraid. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there? I asked Caesar. And oh no, he said, she'll stay up for you. When we get out of these woods, you'll see her light shining in the window. And we did ride out into that clearing. And there, sure enough, was your light. I remember you waiting there at the door that you put your arms close to me, a tired and bewildered little boy. You had a fire burning on the hearth, a hot supper waiting for me on the stove. And after supper, you took me to my new room, heard me say my prayers, and then sat beside me until I fell asleep. Then listen to what he wrote. Auntie, someday God will send for you to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons, the strange journey, or the messenger. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me many years ago. And at the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome awaiting, and you will be safe, safe in God's care. I don't know about you, but I I think of John 14, the words of Christ in John 14, where he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And don't forget verse 4. Everybody forgets verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. See, for the people of God, build your confidence in Jesus Christ. Build your trust in Christ. Strengthen yourself with the word of God. Get into the book so that you know both in your heart and mind that you can trust him come moving day. Instead of fearing death, look forward to our our new home with our loving Savior. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.